John 1, 14 to 16. The word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I can understand why of all the accounts of your birth, John's is least often chosen as the script for Sunday school Christmas pageants and programs. After all, what parts would the children play? What cute costumes could they wear? There's no manger, no Joseph and Mary, no shepherds, angels, and wise men and lowing cattle. But there certainly is you. You are the only star on the horizon in this nativity scene, and oh, how you shine. I praise you, Lord Jesus, for becoming flesh and tabernacling among us for just the right amount of time. Though equal to, yet distinct from the Father, you didn't consider your glory something to be tightly grasped or held onto selfishly. Rather, you emptied yourself by becoming a man, but not just an ordinary man, a servant man, the servant of the Lord, the second Adam, our Savior, my Savior. In your 33 years of incarnate life, you accomplished everything necessary for the redemption of the people for whom you lived and died, but also for the restoration of the world you created in love. Be magnified, adored, regaled, worshipped, and loved, Lord Jesus. What a wonderful, merciful Savior you are. What a God who is so mighty to save. I cannot sing Isaac Watts' great Advent hymn, Joy to the World, without thinking of this telling of your birth, Lord Jesus. For indeed, you presently rule the world with your grace and truth, the grace and truth with which you are overwhelming full. And you're making the nations prove, and you're making me prove, the wonders of your love. The wonders of your love, the wonders, the wonders of your love. For from the fullness of your grace, I keep receiving one blessing after another, one blessing on top of another. The blessings of your imputed righteousness, the blessings of perpetual favor with God, the blessings of your intercession and advocacy, the blessings of your Spirit's work in my life, the blessings of citizenship in heaven, the blessing of knowing the good work you have begun in me and in the cosmos will be brought to completion. Hail the incarnate deity, joy to the world and to me indeed. So very amen, I pray in your most glorious name. Haggai chapter two, 
I know that Advent and Christmas is over, but we're going to continue in our Advent series in the book of Haggai because, well, it is still 2020 and there just aren't any rules anymore, right? Everything has been thrown out the window this year, so we're going to be in Haggai today and then we're going to finish it, Lord willing, next week. And we're just going to jump right away into the text So turn in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2, look at verse 10, and hear the word of the Lord. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing But from this day on, I will bless you. Now, that might not necessarily warm your heart unless you like making stew or if you like true crime. This might not be your favorite Bible passage unless you happen to love Fig Newtons. But it just might become one of your favorite passages after today. And our big idea today is simply this. Circle where you see grace. That's what Haggai is suggesting to the nation of Judah. He wants them to circle a date on the calendar so that they can remember that Yahweh drew near to them and started a process of blessing their socks off. And then hopefully after this sermon, you'll not only circle or underline a few verses in this passage, but also maybe you'll sit down and look over your life, maybe even look over this year, And circle where you have seen Jesus be so kind and so merciful and so gracious to you. So Haggai came preaching once again. And the text once again gives us the date, December 18th. That date is important and we'll talk about that in a moment. And in his sermon, Haggai, representing the Lord, asks a question of the priests. He poses a few scenarios to the religious leaders, and he wants them to answer. So think of this like a catechism question. We'll call it the New Temple Catechism. And it goes something like this. Question one. If someone carries holy meat in a brown paper bag and they touch other things, do those things become holy? And the answer is no. 
Question number two, if someone is unclean because they touched a dead body and they touch other things, do those things become unclean? Answer is yes. In the Mosaic law, there were laws about cleanliness and holiness, verses that you probably have highlighted and circled in your Bible, like Numbers 19.11, which says, Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. Now, that might not necessarily warm your heart unless you like true crime. But what's the point of all these laws that talk about holiness and cleanliness? What's the point of these catechism questions posed by Haggai here in chapter 2? Here's the point. Here's his point. Holiness is not contagious. Uncleanness, however, is contagious. If a holy thing touches something, that doesn't make whatever it touches holy. But if something unclean or someone unclean touches something, like if you touch the dead body, then you would become unclean. In other words, the Lord was teaching his people that holiness is not contagious. You can't catch it from other things. But uncleanness, being unclean, is contagious. It spreads. And that's why Haggai asked the priests these questions. He wants to show them how they ended up where they are. So Haggai will then go on and apply these catechism questions to the nation of Judah. Look at verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Just like if you touched a dead body, you would be unclean. So too was the nation of Judah. And just like you don't become holy by simply touching a holy thing at the temple, so too with Judah. And so here's the point, and here's how it applies to them. Their worship was unclean. That's what Haggai is trying to get across to them. The temple, as it lay unfinished, was like a dead body in their midst. Joyce Baldwin, a commentator, said, The skeleton of the ruined temple was like a dead body decaying and making everything contaminated. Their worship was unclean. Judah thought they could have the grace of God without the means of God's grace, without the temple without the means by which God's grace came to them. They wanted God's grace, but they didn't want the God of grace. They didn't want God. Now, prior to Haggai coming on the scene here in 520 BC, they were offering some sacrifices at the temple. They had built an altar, but the temple remained in ruins. They had become content with church, even though, like Elvis, Jesus had left the building. God's presence wasn't among them the way that he had prescribed in his word, and yet they were okay with that. They were saying, we're still going to have church even if Jesus doesn't show up. So their worship was unclean. Their worship was polluted. It was contaminated. It was defiled, and it overflowed into every area of their life. Because their worship was unclean and not according to God's word. Then all of their life was unclean. And thus, that's why they had no enjoyment 
and no satisfaction in life. And that's the point of Haggai's new temple catechism. To show Judah that just because they had at one time many years begun to rebuild the temple after they returned home from exile, that didn't make them holy. They were being exposed to holy things at the temple site, yes, but that didn't make them holy. Just because they were having church didn't mean that their worship was acceptable. In fact, Haggai says it was unclean. Now, why was their worship unclean? Because they thought they could have the grace of God without the God of grace. They thought they could worship any way that they wanted to and not in the way that was prescribed in God's word. They didn't want God. They were content to continue to worship with this makeshift altar for burnt offerings while the rest of the temple lay in ruins. So what does that mean for us? It means that if Jesus is not our treasure, if he's not our joy, then our worship too can become contaminated. If we're not worshiping Jesus the way he has prescribed in his word, then our worship can become contaminated. And so many churches do this nowadays. They worship in ways that are not prescribed in God's word. Now, not that we ever do this perfectly, love Jesus perfectly, because we don't. But if our hearts aren't captured by the Lord, then we too can just go through the motions like Judah. And in my experience, I know when my heart is in a funk I know when my heart is not engaged. I know when my heart is drifting. And it's in those times, if we don't confess and repent and come clean with the Lord about what is really going on in our hearts, it is then that we will worship half-heartedly and therefore just go through the motions. Let me ask you today, is your heart drifting today? Do you love Jesus Has your heart turned cold? Are you just kind of eking out an existence like Judah pre-520 BC? Just kind of going through the motions? If so, then just come home. What are you waiting for? Just come home to Jesus. He's waiting with arms open wide to receive you just like Judah. In fact, in Isaiah 30, I read this last night, it says... He waits to be gracious to us. He's just waiting, saying, if you come home, I've got all this grace. I'm just going to shower you. I'm waiting for you. I want to be gracious to you. And then Isaiah says, he exalts himself to show mercy. God glorifies himself when he shows mercy to sinners like us. So go home. Your heart will be blessed and Jesus will be glorified. And so one of the big takeaways here from Haggai 2 is that calendars matter to the Lord and they should matter to his people. In particular, for Haggai and company, calendars are important because the Lord says that he is going to start blessing his people on a very specific day, December 18th. As I mentioned last week, our calendar differs from Israel's calendar, but the 24th day of the ninth month corresponds with our December 18th. And so For Judah, in 520 BC, December 18th was going to be a big deal. Why? Because this is the day when Yahweh said that he would send his blessing down on his people. He was going to start showering them with blessing. Up to this point, things were different. Recall from chapter 1, they worked hard only to have the bills pile up and their money just disappear. 
They were living check to check, just eking out an existence. They had clothes, but they couldn't stay warm. There was no enjoyment. There was no satisfaction with life. Why? Because the temple lay in ruins and it didn't matter to them if Yahweh drew close to them or not. Yahweh's presence among them wasn't a big deal. They thought they could experience God's grace without the means of His grace at the temple. But now, on this day, December 18th, 520 B.C., this would be the day that Yahweh would start blessing them again. In fact, Haggai told them to mark it on their calendars. He wants them to get out a red Sharpie marker and circle December 18th on their calendars because that would serve as a reminder to them that the Lord keeps His promises This would be a day that they could look back on and remember. I mean, who knows? Perhaps someday down the road, they might want to look back on that very crummy year, 520 B.C. Now, you may be thinking, I don't ever want to look back on 2020 A.D. It was a crummy year. But you might one day. And I trust that as you do look back, as Judah could you would find evidence of God's grace. In fact, I would encourage you to sit down with your family at some point over the next couple weeks and ask yourselves, where did we see evidence of God's grace in 2020? Where did we experience his blessing in the middle of a pretty crummy year? How was Jesus good to us? So sit down with your family at some point and look over 2020 And circle where you see grace. Do that. Look over your calendar. Look back over this year. And let it help you rehearse the gospel. Look back and see how good and kind and merciful God was to you. And see evidence of the Spirit's work in your life and in the life of your family. And do this here at Grace. In your ministries that you're involved in here at Grace. In your small groups. Awana, youth group, women's ministry. Look back over the year and talk about how Jesus blessed you and then give him all the glory. You just might find that 2020 wasn't as bad as it could have been. And your faith will be strengthened. You'll be humbled. Jesus will be glorified. And it might even cause you to repent. Listen, only good things come out of repentance. Only good things happen when we repent. And only good things will happen if we humble ourselves and repent of all the ways that we mumbled and grumbled and complained this year. I don't know about your family, but for the Magnus family, there were statistically more fights and arguments in our house this year than in previous years. I don't have the hard and fast data, but I know that bickering and quarreling and complaining must have gone up by at least 37% this year. So I don't know about your family, but the Magnus family has a good deal to repent of. Maybe you do too. Back to Haggai. He is suggesting that Judah circle December 18th on the calendar because on this very day, as Haggai is preaching, the Lord is beginning to bless his people again. Look at verse 15. 
Now then, consider from this day onward. We see that same phrase again in verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month. This is what the Lord wants them to consider. What was your life like pre-520 BC before Haggai showed up and started preaching? What was life like for them? In verses 16 and 17, we read that when they uh, came to measure out the grain and they thought, we're probably going to have 20 measures after weighing it, there was only 10. They thought they had 50 gallons of wine, but once they measured it, they just had 20 gallons. So life was hard. They were suffering. They were living paycheck to paycheck. And then the Lord says, he's the one who messed up their gardens and their crops. He's the reason why their crops started to mold. He's the reason why they would pick a tomato, set it on the counter, go to bed, wake up in the morning, and it's already moldy. He's the one who hammered them with hell. And that totally ruined their gardens. And he did it to get their attention, just like he promised he would do in Deuteronomy 28. The Lord said, if you turn away from me, I will bring covenant curses down upon you and discipline you. But then the Lord speaks one of the saddest phrases in the Bible at the end of verse 17. It says, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. After losing their crops, losing their wine, and just eking out a life with no enjoyment, no satisfaction, they still would not return to the Lord. That, my friends, is proof that what Jeremiah tells us about the human heart is true. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We're just stubborn people, aren't we? We are. God hammered them, and they would not turn to him. You can file that under total depravity. And still, because God loved Judah so much, and because he loves us so much, he sent Haggai to preach to them, to turn their hearts back to the Lord. Understand this, Grace. Sometimes the Lord lets us wallow in the sins that we want so bad so that at some point we just get sick of it that we turn to Him again in repentance. Let me say it again. Sometimes Jesus lets us wallow in the sins that we want and crave so bad so that at some point we just get sick of it And we turn back to him again in repentance. The Westminster Confession of Faith says something along these lines in chapter 5. It says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise or discipline them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support unto himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends." You probably have experienced that in your life where you've binged on sin and you just get sick of it. And you're like, oh, I want to go back to Jesus. That's what the Westminster Confession of Faith is saying. 
Sometimes, just like the nation of Judah, God leaves us in our sin to show us just how corrupt our hearts are. He lets us wallow in the sins that we want and crave so badly so that we come to our senses and discover the hidden strength of corruption and deceit that is in our hearts. Why does he do that? So that we may be humbled because sometimes we think we're not that bad. And he does it to draw us back to himself so that we depend more fully on him and to make us more watchful against the sin that we love and crave so much. And then the Westminster Confession ends this paragraph by saying that there's some mystery here also why God does this. It says God also does this for sundry, other, just, and holy ends. In other words, he does it for other reasons that we may never know because he's God and we're not. So what chapter 2 of Haggai and what chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession of Faith are trying to impress upon us is that the Lord may chasten and discipline you because he loves you. He may take you through trying circumstances to do a work in your heart to get your attention. But that is not his only purpose in allowing difficult seasons like the year 2020, for instance. There are many reasons why God does what he does. Just go read the book of Job. And if you don't have time to sit down and read that very long book, go read the book of Ecclesiastes where you'll find that there are many reasons why suffering and life in a fallen world can be so mysterious. And you just may never figure out why it's happening. And if you're still too cramped for time to read 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, then just listen to the first two lines of William Cooper's hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And you get half of those lyrics even in the title. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. Sometimes we don't know why we suffer. It could be that what happens is like what was happening in Haggai's day. The Lord loves us so much that he messes with our world and disrupts our little kingdoms of self in order to get our attention and to draw our hearts back to him. So how do we know if the Lord is chastening and disciplining us to get our attention? Or how do we know that we're just experiencing what every single human being does in a fallen, broken world? How do we know? Well, we have to be careful here so that we don't accuse God of doing something that he's not doing. How do we remain open to the fact that God may be disciplining us, but also be open to the fact that we may be drawing an unnecessary conclusion all on our own? We have to have an attitude of openness first, that God may be disciplining you. So be teachable. But don't just assume that God is trying to get your attention or he's disciplining you just because something has happened in your life that you don't like. As I mentioned several weeks ago, just because your dishwasher breaks down doesn't mean that God's trying to get your attention or that he's disciplining you. Maybe your dishwasher just broke down. That happens, you know, in a fallen, broken world. And you don't need to go accusing Jesus of something. He might look at you and say, hey, that thing was 27 years old. What did you expect? My point in saying this is be careful. Be very careful when you say that God is doing X because Y has happened. Be careful. Be 
very careful when you say God is doing X because Y has happened. I think we speak too freely, too quickly, without enough reservation and caution when we speak about what God may or may not be doing. So let's be humble because you could be wrong. I could be dead wrong. But what we can say, at least in this text, in Haggai chapter 2, in 520 BC, God was doing things to get the nation of Judah's attention because this is the second time in this book that God tells us that. So just be careful and exercise caution when you speak about why or how God is moving in your life because you might be wrong. Of course, there are many verses that tell us what God is always doing in our lives, no matter what is happening, so you can stick with those and be confident. You know from Romans 8, 28, that God is always working things together for your good. So you can say that with confidence. Whatever's happening, you can say, this is happening because God is bringing good into my life. He's going to turn this and work this for good. And you know from 2 Corinthians 1, 9, that God allows suffering in your life so that you will not rely on yourself, but on the God who raises the dead. So stick with verses like that and be cautious when you declare what God is doing in your life or what God is doing in this world or what God is doing in this nation or what God is doing in 2020 because you might be wrong in your conclusion. Use caution when speaking about what you think God is up to. Because sometimes it's a mystery. Sometimes Jesus does things for sundry other just and holy ends, like the Westminster Confession of Faith says. And he doesn't always reveal that to you, and he doesn't always tell you why. That's why the book of Job and Ecclesiastes are in the Bible. To humble us. To make us go like this. And to remind us that we don't know everything that God is up to. And only he does. In my experience, after being a Christian for over 43 years, it's easier to look back and see what God was doing rather than trying to predict it in the moment. In real time. Most of the time, it isn't until some time has passed that we can look back and say, with perhaps a little bit more accuracy, not much, ah, God was doing this then. That's what he was up to. And even then, we're probably not as accurate as we think, and we probably still miss 10,000 other things that God was doing. That's humbling, isn't it? It's good to be humbled. So here's what you can do while you endure seasons that may or may not be the Lord disciplining you or may or may not be the Lord trying to get your attention, just like he was doing with Judah in 520 BC. Number one, pray for a soft heart. Pray for a soft heart even if you don't get understanding, even if you don't get answers why what is happening is happening in your life. Pray that you would be sanctified and that the Spirit of God would conform you more and more into the image of Christ even if you don't get the answer as to why what is happening is happening in your life. And number two, ask yourself, how can I glorify God in this situation? When, when you endure difficult seasons in your life and you don't know why, number one, pray for a soft heart. And number two, ask yourself, how can I glorify God in this situation? 
How could Judah glorify God while they waited for his blessing? They could keep working on the temple. They could continue in repentance. They could pray for a soft heart while they waited for the crops to come in. So what do you do when you find yourself in trying circumstances? What do you do when, like Judah, you have to deal with the consequences of your sin? What do you do next week on Wednesday afternoon at 2.37 p.m.? You ask yourself, how can I glorify God in this situation? How can I glorify God in this trying circumstance that I didn't ask for? How can I glorify God as I deal with the consequences of my sin that I clearly brought on myself? How can I glorify God at 2.37 on Wednesday afternoon? Listen, there will be times in your life when you don't ask for trials, you don't ask for trying circumstances to come into your life. In fact, you may even be the innocent party in a difficult situation that just barged into your life unannounced. How do you cope with that? What do you do? You can't go wrong by simply asking, how can I glorify God in this situation? I don't know about you, but there are many times, very frequently, that I end up in circumstances that I didn't ask for. That probably doesn't happen to you, does it? probably only one or two people here that can relate. So the rest of you, you can tune me out. You can get your iPhone out and check your email or get on Instagram or something. But uh, for those of you who do have times where circumstances invade your life unannounced that you didn't ask for, you can pay attention to us, the few of you that are here. The rest of you, you can just tune me out. Probably doesn't happen to you, but I frequently end up in trials and situations that are hard and that I didn't ask for. They weren't on my Christmas list. And yet, these times of suffering just barge in, uninvited to my life. I didn't ask them to, and I don't want to have to go through them. And you probably can't relate to this, can you? So pray for me. Well, one thing that the Holy Spirit has been teaching me this year is to stop working so hard for my happiness and instead focus on ways that I can grow in holiness. So instead of just trying to be happy He's been showing me that I need to focus on being holy, growing more like Christ, being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus, beholding his glory and being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And one way that I'm learning this as I go through these trials and go through these situations that I did not ask for is to ask myself, how can I glorify God in this situation? If there's anyone out there that can relate, That's what I've been trying to do, and it's been helpful. When you end up in situations that you didn't ask for and that barge into your life uninvited, ask yourself, how can I glorify God in this situation? What does his word call me to do right now? Well, there's one more thing that Haggai wants them to consider, how God is now turning to them in his grace. He does that, you know, just because he's so good. He's so kind. There's, there's a quote on uh, the front of our worship bulletin by Jack Miller. It says, to be near God and to have God near us is the whole purpose of human life. God will not, he cannot stay away from repentant sinners. He sees humanity in all its nastiness and yet is given to strange, tender excesses. That's what we're going to see next in verse 18. The Lord drawing near. Look at verse 18. Consider from this day onward, 
from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. The Hebrew word there for bless is barak. It means to take note of something and to meet the need. So when you say the Lord bless you to someone, you're saying, may God look over your life, take note of all of your needs, and then may he meet them and bless them. When you say, Lord, bless me, it's look over my life, do an inventory, get out a piece of paper, write down everything I need, and then meet those needs. And the Lord is telling Judah, now I'm going to take note of your needs and I'm going to meet them. The Lord was saying, I'm turning to you now in grace. You can mark it on your calendars as the day, December 18th, when I begin to bless you again. You've been suffering. You've been having to deal with the consequences of your sin, but all of that is going to change now. Buckle up, y'all. This is how God always deals with us. After we have binged on sin, when we come to our senses, he comes to us again. He's always been there waiting But when we come to our senses, he draws near again to us. Why? Because he wants to be near. Because he just can't get close enough to his people. Now in 520 BC, things had gotten bad. They were out of seed. None in the barns. No crops in the field. They were flat broke. But the Lord said that he would come to their rescue. They were on the brink of disaster. Famine was close. But now... On December 18th, things would change. But who cares that they were going to be getting crops again? Who cares that grapes and figs would soon blossom? So what? I mean, Judah would soon be able to reopen their wineries and make fig newtons again. Who cares? How does that apply to us? Well, the promise from Yahweh that fig newton production was about to start up again in 520 BC means that God often turns to us and draws near when we are at our deepest moments of pain, suffering, hardship, guilt, and shame. That's where he meets us. That's where he met Judah. Knee deep in our consequences. That's where Judah was. And Yahweh drew near to them again, even though they had blown it. And that's when he draws near to us. When we blow it, he draws near to us in our time of need. When we're on the brink of disaster, when we have nowhere else to go and we have no hope. At the deepest places of your shame and sadness and despair, you are not alone. That's where Jesus draws near. At the most embarrassing places of your life, Jesus draws near with his grace. That's what Haggai wants you to know. He's seen it in real time. He saw it on December 18th, 520 BC. So circle where you see grace, where you see his blessing in your life. Look back over this year. Look back over the calendar and see how the Lord took note of your needs and met them, how he blessed you. And circle where you saw his grace flood your life. You just might find yourself repenting of any mumbling or grumbling that may have occurred. So let's end 2020 with repentance and then let's rehearse the gospel because the main place that we now look to see evidence of God's grace in our lives is at the cross on Calvary where he met our need.
That's where we died with Christ. That's where we were judged. That's where the law's condemnation of us came to a screeching halt. That's where Jesus took the penalty for our sin, for our stubborn rebellion. And that's where rebels were adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters. We look back to a day over 20, 20 years ago and we circle that day on the calendar as the day when God started blessing us in Christ. The day he took note of our need for righteousness, our need for forgiveness. Circle that day on the calendar and then rest in Christ because that's the day when God stopped remembering your sins. Remember those catechism questions from earlier? What was the point? The point was holiness is not contagious. You can't catch holiness. You can't catch righteousness. You can't earn it. It's only received with the empty hands of faith. It's a gift that must be received. It's a free gift that is given when one trusts in Christ alone. If you haven't trusted in Christ, I hope you do that today. Listen, Haggai wants you to know God will draw near to you in your mess. He will draw near to you in your consequences. He will draw near to you in your suffering. He will draw near to you in your uninvited and unwanted circumstances. Just humble yourself and believe that he is as good and gracious as he says he is. Let's pray. Father, as we sing, you are a good, good father. It's who you are. And we admit that though we are your children, we are stubborn and we are sinful. And so we repent this morning for any mumbling and grumbling and complaining that we may have done throughout this year, Lord. We repent for the ways that we haven't trusted in you. We humble ourselves and say we need you. And we thank you for the righteousness that you give to us that comes only through your son's finished work. We thank you that Jesus lived and died for us, that he rose from the grave and ascended to your right hand. That is our hope. Lord, help us to rehearse this good news and to keep repenting and turning from our sin. Awaken us, Lord. If there's someone here today whose heart is cold and hardened to you, Lord, because they've been wallowing in their darling sins, Lord, awaken them right now. May they not be weighed down with shame and guilt and condemnation, but may they see you, Jesus, with arms open wide saying, you can come home. doesn't matter what you've done. Oh God, unthaw our hearts today and help us to love and serve you. In your name we pray, amen.